And welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus. John, what's going on, my man? You already know what's going on. We're back. We're here. Giving the people what they want. That's right. And we've got a exciting podcast today. I'm pumped for it. I'm thrilled. This this is literally the X factor for performance. 100%. But before we get there, John, we've got some exciting announcements here. I'm going to hand it over to you because I think this is another game changer here. Take it away. Well, friends, if you liked or loved or were provoked to think with the Tony Holler podcast uh, that we had a couple episodes ago, actually several, many episodes ago, like um, episode 100 or so, right, Steve? Yeah. Well, I'm happy to announce Tony and I have linked up to collab on a new podcast called Tired is the Enemy. So essentially, he and I are having discussions and going about overtraining and how that has adverse effects on performance, not only in sport, also in the classroom, also in business, also uh, in just your daily life. So check it out. The website is tiredistheenemy.com. And I'm sure you'll be seeing a lot of stuff from Tony and I on our Twitters uh, related to it. But it's going to be fun. Uh, he and I have already recorded a couple episodes in the bank. And they're just really good talks. So check it out. All right. I can't wait for that. I think that's going to have wide applicability, reaching beyond sport, dealing with fatigue, and that languishing feeling that, uh, honestly, many of us feel right now. Yeah. So yeah. So jump on that. Tiredistheenemy.com. So let's jump into today's episode. As I said, really excited here. Belief building, the X factor to success. And, you know, John, whenever I think of belief building, I come back to something that I've tweeted, something that I've said, and it's something that I, I believe, which is you can have the perfect training plan that is, you know, perfect amount of mileage and intensity and training and workouts and it all dialed in by the best coach in the world. But if the athlete doesn't buy in, if they do not believe that this is going to work, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter at all. It won't work. That perfect training plan isn't going to get the great results that you thought. But so much of our coaching education, so much of our coaching focuses on crafting the perfect training, the plan, the workouts, all that, that we spend so much time on it. But it's really that belief that is the X factor that determines performance and gets us over the hump. And then the other stuff is, is it's important, obviously, but it's really secondary. We need the buy-in. We need the belief before we worry about the details of the workouts. Steve, you are 100% right. And, you know, self-belief helps to accelerate success. However, most of us just pick up beliefs haphazardly through life, right? We have some reinforcement here or someone exposes us to an idea here or someone tells us this and then we carry that 
you know, concept, whether it's a value or not for a long, long time. But the great thing about beliefs is they're the seeds of your future self. And they're the things that help give us direction, shape and guide us and give us a um, idea about what we can and can't accomplish. My favorite quote about beliefs from Henry Ford, right? And that's that famous quote, like, whether you think you can or whether you think you cannot, either way, you're probably right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's very true. And, you know, the, the thing is, if... Um, the thing is, if you go through and you look at like some of the great coaches throughout, you know, high school, college, D1, D2, D3, professional, you start to understand that this belief component, like instilling that with athletes is what made them great, right? What comes to mind, you know, if you were ever fortunate to listen to a, a Joe V. Hill talk, right, then you know that, yeah, Joe V. Hill, like he's, he's great at the science, great at understanding the workouts, but man, you just listen to that guy talk and you're like, oh, like this is, this is the, the, the magic here. This is the secret sauce. You know, this is the, the, he gets athletes to buy into his program, what they're selling, what they're doing. And, and that's it. And then they'll go run through a brick wall for him and for the team and all of that stuff. And that's, that's the magic. That's the key. Yeah. I think that's also my Smith secret up at NAU. You know, I went and recently visited Flagstaff and just blown away by the faith and belief and stories and narratives that uh, the NAU athletes and even some of the post-collegiate athletes he's worked with were telling themselves and how he, you know, he talked about reshaping those stories so there are stories of empowerment, stories of confidence, stories of excitement and exploration. I can do this mindset versus I don't know mindset. And that's the hard part about belief, right? Is it's armor, so to speak, mental armor and tools that we use to go into the uncertainty that is the crucible, not only of life, but also specifically for athletes competing on racing game day. Yep, exactly. So <laughs> let's let's dive into, okay, we've established the belief is really important. It's how we get things done. Um, but I think there's there's like where this often gets confused is there's like this belief or this idea that you can just like instill and it's like almost like a fake kind of belief by telling people like, oh, you can do it. Like, you've got this. And then there's this like deep-seated buy-in or belief that comes from like true trust and vulnerability and doing the work, right? And I think like that's the distinction. And if I could go off on a tangent here slightly, because that's what we do here. But John, if you think back to when we grew up and went through grade school and middle school and all that stuff, it was the height of what we call like the self-esteem movement, right? Where you get told like, you're great, you can do anything, like blah, blah, blah. And the, the principle behind it in the 70s, 80s, 90s, when it was at its peak, um, 
and said, oh, if we can just lift people up and give them self-belief by telling them that they're great, that they're good at all these things, um, et cetera, et cetera, then we can cure some of like the ills of society and give them the confidence and self-belief to do things. And the premise of that is you sit there and you say, okay, this makes kind of sense. Like get kids to believe in themselves, like more confidence, more self-esteem, all that stuff. Like they're going to be in a better place and won't feel down, et cetera. But the problem is we went about it by trying to instill this like kind of contingent belief that had no backing behind it. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Right. It's just being told like, oh, you're great. Like everybody wins. Like we've got this. You can do it. All this stuff. But there's no backing or substance. And the human brain and kids are smarter than we give them credit for, right? We our 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 mind recognizes when we're being BSed and when we're getting a true compliment that reflects who we are or what we've done. And we can kind of internalize this. And you know this, right? You know when you're getting congratulated by somebody when it like, ah, that doesn't really mean anything. Versus you know, when a good coach or a, a mentor teacher or, you know, whoever it is comes up and sometimes just says like, hey, I'm really proud of you for doing that or for how you handled that. And it might not have been a win or, or whatever, but it's like you get that moment of like, oh, man, that is genuine. And that that genuineness like gives you that like belief, that self-confidence, all that stuff. But we don't like we don't have enough moments of that genuineness. And instead, we try and hand things out. as like the candy version where it's like, oh, yeah, great job. Like always good job after everything, even if it like I don't know what's going on or it wasn't like super well deserved or what have you. And, and like that is the difference of like, you know, it's not that the self-esteem movement was necessarily bad, but it was based on this like contingent, you know, non-realistic, non-earned um, accolades or confidence or belief that doesn't translate into this genuine sense of self and uh, sense of confidence that we're trying to get at and talk about. Yeah, traditionally, it's like a lot of uh, social conventions. They end up starting off at, in you know good spirits or for a good reason, but become corrosive and wrong, right? And so you hear this all the time. Good job, good job, good job. But if you watch really carefully, like say, I always loved watching Marshawn Lynch interact with the pub or media and interact with different persons in the media because that was the ultimate definition of game recognized game. He wouldn't give a quarter to any of the normal journalists because they just ask stupid questions. And, you know, that's where he's like, hey, I'm just here so I don't get fined, you know, uh, famous Super Bowl thing because he was focused on the mission. But then you see an interview with him with Deion Sanders, who was actually in the arena, who actually won Super Bowls, who actually was a competitor, who actually understands the game and understands what's at stake. And he's very open and charismatic. And, you know, Dion asks good questions. He gives very sophisticated uh, answers, like very accessible, right? And I always thought that was just super smart on Marshawn Lynn's part of just saying, look, 
your guys' opinions and questions are kind of trite and silly versus Dion's, all right, those I'll entertain because he's one of, you know, the greats who went before me. And that's where it's like, as a coach, I learned that early myself. It's like, don't say good job when it wasn't a good job. Like hold that, you know, um, feedback or hold that encouragement back because you're you're sending a mixed signal. And this is, I think, the shallowness of kind of this superficial nourishment of self-esteem. It's like kind of popcorn or candy nourishment. It's it, it's not uh, it's not deep. It's not sincere. The better thing to do is as a parent or even as a coach, if you're there in person, go, hey, I really enjoyed watching you compete. And I thought during this period of the race or the, the game, you were going all out with your heart, you know, and mind fully invested. But then it looked like it kind of like, you know, went off course. Take me through that, right? That's a much better dialogue because you're saying, I enjoyed watching you. And so they know they're being observed, the athlete, but also, and that someone is deriving pleasure from observing them give a full effort. But then you pivot it and say, Hey, take me through what happened here when you started to kind of retreat. Now you have a really good, awesome way to not only advance the conversation and that person's growth, but also to reinforce that you do support them, but not just saying, hey, good job. You tried hard, but you really sucked and failed at the end there, which is like what a lot of people do is just kind of a consolation prize. Good job. And it's like, no, the job wasn't good. If this person's been preparing for hours, weeks, and months to perform at a certain level, and then, you know, they go halfway through the race, three quarters of the race and blow up. They know it's not a good job. They're not, they don't want to hear it's a good job. It's not a good job unless it really is a good job. And we need to remember that. Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's a lot of it is because like, good job is our default right it it and it doesn't really have any meaning and and what happens is we kind of use it as the default of like oh that i don't really know what to say here that kind of sucks you're trying to be nice right yeah Yeah, you're trying to be nice and like the intention of like oh let's be nice is is like valid i get that but i think I think getting specific is the key there is if something didn't go well, you know, saying good job or nice work or whatever, like that, all the person who hears that is thinking is like, they blow it off. Right. Because they're like, no, I sucked. (laughs) You know, (laughs) like I sucked. What the heck? But if you frame it kind of like you said, where you get specific and it's not just good job. It's like, Hey, during this, like I saw you do this. That was great. Which tells you, you, it tells them you're paying attention, right? Because often what happens is when we use platitudes, like good job or generic stuff, like the athlete also thinks like, Oh, Coach probably just ignored me, like, once I started sucking, <laughs> you know? Like, he probably just worried about, like, X, Y, and Z, or this person, or number three person instead of me, or whatever have you in the race. Like, I started sucking, whatever. What you want to do is you want to show in those moments that, like, you're still paying attention, 
that you still care, that you're still trying to figure it out. Um, and that you appreciate like that they put forth an effort in A, B, and C, you know? So a lot of times my go-to is like, again, focusing on something that they did do well or, you know, what have you, but then set, then refocusing on, okay, let's get to the solution here. So a lot of, a lot of times, like, let's use an example, a bad race, you know, where someone is just falling apart, you know, a lot of times I'll say, you know, I noticed that, you know, you kept your focus during this and you kept trying or, you know, you didn't let it spiral out of control during this. You know, you're, you're recognizing that you saw something in them that they just didn't give up or didn't, you know, um, spiral out of control and then getting to the heart of, okay, let's figure this out. What you don't want to do is just give them platitudes where, again, they're going to see through your BS and that doesn't help engage that trust and belief. And it's kind of it's kind of weird here because we think like belief comes from positivity, right? Positive things. But often like belief comes from knowing that you can trust your coach or the objective observer to tell you the truth and then figure out how to get you in the right spot. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. That That is the key is trust comes from, you know, alignment of saying and doing, right? You say you're going to do, you say this can happen and then it does happen. You say it's going to go like this and then it does go like this. And this is the difference between I think practice and training right so let's get super specific like training is about conditioning it's about elevating different qualities and systems and we can do that through running we can do that through uh, strength work in the gym we can do that a myriad of ways right we can impact the metabolism impact the nervous system impact Uh, the cardiovascular system, endocrine system, and on and on and on. Practice is different. Practice is preparation for competition. So you're rehearsing in practice very specific steps, cues, skills that you're going to use in competition. And part of that uh, rehearsal is belief building. And so you know, I actually was walking in the forest the other day uh, with Rob Connor. We were chatting a little bit about the season for the pilots. We were, you know, he's picking my brain about workouts and things. And, you know, uh, he was asking about the Florida State course where uh, NCAs this year, they haven't ran it before. You know, I, uh, when I was the High Performance West uh, team was, um, you know, operational many years ago, we had our women take second there. And he's like, well, what'd you do? I go, well, I just got them ready. Like, it's going to be flat. It's going to be fast. It's going to be a barn burner the first mile. So what do we do every practice? Run one mile hard before we did anything else. Like five minute, 450 mile. Go, ladies, go. And then we'll start to train and do whatever the workout is that day. But uh, the goal was to ingrain in those women racing. Like, hey, I can go out hard fast the first mile and still, you know, be able to compete and still be able to, um, you know, race and not blow up. Right. So a lot of times, you know, you got to ask in practice, 
are we building the race pieces and how are we building those race pieces? You know, versus I think when I was a younger coach, what I was so concerned about was just getting them fit, just conditioning the physiology. But you got to condition the mind too. So getting really explicit about, all right, in this practice, what we're going to do is we're going to always start. I mean, I always start with the start. You can condition the start. So if you're at a flat and fast course, if you're at an uphill course, if you're at a wide course that goes to narrow, whatever it may be, how do you need to start that championship race or series of races? We're going to start with that. And then we're going to work on middle pieces, right? Okay, what do we want in the middle half? Okay, what? how are we going to respond when it gets tough and difficult? And what, what are we going to work on or focus our attention on? And then you finish with the finish, right? Because it gives people then a clear path and a clear belief of like saying, okay, I can do this. And that's kind of like belief building. I take uh, a lot of cues from a great book called Will This Make the Boat Go Faster? Um, that was written by one of the, uh, two, uh, yeah, Sydney Olympics 2000 British eight plus rowing crew, right? And they use the... Um, acronym DICE for how to believe built. And DICE stands for D is deserve, I is important, C can do, E is exciting. So breaking that down real quick, a lot of people don't deserve, think they deserve success, right? And then some people think they deserve all the success. So it's this spectrum of entitlement to lack of, um, you know, entitlement. In the middle, is this, okay, I'm working hard. Everyone else is working hard. I deserve this. I deserve some success. And that, you know, typically with distance runners, they tend to only think, oh, I have to have the most impressive and pretty training log to deserve success. To a point, yes. But also reminding people when they're doing it, hey, you deserve to put yourself out there. You deserve to go for it. You have been working hard. Don't, you know, fill them up with false uh, belief if their work and their fitness doesn't back it up by no means don't do that but remind them you know if they're on the course and on the path that they do deserve it and then two it's important right it's they spend a lot of time and energy not only training but recovering and responding adapting to training so remind them you know why is this important to you why do you want to do compete at this level like what will like achieving the goal you have improving your life, right? How will you feel when you achieve it? Really start to anchor those questions so that they become aware and can actually like sense, you know, physically, emotionally what's, um, you know, in front of them. And then remind them they can do this and why they can do this. Point to specific things they did in practice multiple times over and over again saying, look, we went out hard the first mile every workout for two months and then you did other work. You can do this, right? And then finally, it's exciting. It's fun. Like, that's why I love races. Like, I mean, to me, they're just carnivals or festivals. It's great. It's awesome. Like, so much is on display. And getting ready to be a part of that is exciting as well. You know, I I love that framing, the dice framing. That makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I really like your uh, go out, mile, practice hard. Because if there's anything you've we, we've learned from you know modern cognitive science, it's pretty simple, and that is the brain is a predictive, like a prediction maker. Oh, one hundred percent. We love you know we love predictions. Love them. It's like that's what we try to do. We try and predict what's going to happen, and 
if we have any sort of uncertainty, we don't like it, our brand doesn't like it, it tries to like close that gap from certain uncertainty to certain. So when we think about, you know, racing in particular and belief and confidence and all those things, like all it is is making better predictions, right? And if you you can equip your athletes to deal with like the certainty or uncertainty um, in a better manner. And one of those is if you get them to used to going out hard for the first mile, then they, they are very certain about how they will feel, how the experience will be, and they have confidence that that first mile is, is the guy, right? After that, you bring in some uncertainty, but that's where the fitness and training and mindset comes into it, right? The more predictable or prepared they are for the unpredictability, the better they're going to be able to navigate. So if we look at like this belief and confidence, belief founded in doing the work and the experience and what you just said in that nice acronym there of like reflecting on times where you have like worked through this period of difficulty or like experienced this, you know, uh, this level of fatigue or this pace or what have you in the workouts or experience going through, you know, a side stitch and getting through it. All that make all that experience does is makes things a little bit more predictable because you know how to handle them. You know what's coming and you have, you know, you have some confidence that like you're going to be able to navigate it because you've been in similar situations or scenarios um, like that before. And that confidence is also, you know, what people call momentum, right? You see athletes get momentum in a season with small wins that graduate to bigger wins. Um, A really good example of that, right, is Andrew Weeding in 2008. A lot of small wins, then it graduated to bigger wins, becoming this Olympian and putting Andrew Weeding on the map as someone, right, in the running world at that time, American running world at that time. And more than anything, that's what it was a product of. You look at the training and it was very elementary, elementary training. Like I have his logs and it's like, he's not completing workouts. And Vin is like having him do laughable, what we would consider for his credentials, like laughably easy workouts, like four times 400 at 68 seconds with 400 jog, two times 200 at 30, right? And you go, how does this translate to preparing the physiological organism to do this? The the key thing to remember is, you know, as Dan John likes to say, and as I've said before, like, Competitors bring extra on race day. The hardest thing you should do is the race, is the performance, right? Practice very rarely should be this gut-wrenching, you know, break all the, 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 the windows, break down the body, piss urine or piss blood type workouts. That's very, very rare. Only in a, you know, in an advanced athlete who has kind of maxed out all training stimuli, do you need to go this extreme and then put the alarm, uh, you know, impulse at this high of a grade and then take a long recovery period afterwards to get that training effect? Most workouts, you should be leaving with some fuel in the tank, as Steve and I have talked about many a times. So, but also it's emotional fuel in the tank. It's not just physical, right? It's cognitive fuel. And 
the thing with younger athletes who have less experience and less confidence is the coach needs to create the bridge of how what they're doing in practice has direct transfer and impact to what they're going to experience, sensationally feel, and uh, be exposed to on race day. And when you do that, that creates that kind of momentum that transfers from practice to performance. Yeah, you know, that momentum is such a, a key thing. And if you've ever had an athlete uh, who experienced that momentum, it's like this magical, magical period. I mean, that's what my own uh, my own best season in high school was like getting on that momentum train and riding it. And you just can do almost anything, right? The confidence is there. Everything's, you know, moving along. And there's also some interesting science behind this stuff too, is if you look at, um, if you look at testosterone, for example, when we get a bunch, when we start getting a bunch of small wins after each win, we get like this nice bump in testosterone. Why? Because testosterone is related to like status and prestige. And like, if we get a little, uh, if we get a win, like we get a little bump in that. And it, it's got this like nice accumulative effect, right? And uh, actually in the, in the research, it's called the, uh, the winner effect. Um, and they discovered this. We're going to go on another tangent here because I love this story. Um, they discovered this by looking at different animals fighting. Oh, wow. Right? Mm -hmm. So like, you know, whatever, mice and rats. And I think the original study was in like some some uh variation of birds like fighting and the winner of the fight like got a bump in testosterone and then was like more likely to win the next like fight that they were in okay and this was again in animals and then they started researching this in in humans and sport obviously in a variety of sport and it's not you know a huge like, you know, oh, you're going to definitely win the next time. But it gives you this nice little bump where statistically, after you get a win, you get a bump in testosterone. And then statistically, you're more likely to win the next bat match or game or bout or whatever have you. And that's what we're kind of getting at here. And OK, so what does that mean? Well, to me, in a sport like running or in anything in life, actually, is we're to a degree in charge of that framing, right? A win for us doesn't necessarily mean we have to go out and win the New York City Marathon or what have you, right? A win can be like our framing as long as it's legitimate and like gives us, you know, is difficult and challenging to, to um, get, but we can achieve it. Like, we can frame that so we can get on that momentum as long as our expectations are set appropriately. And I think that's, that's again, something so valuable. And then on the flip side of it, you can also get in the negative spiral of this, right? And you see this with sports teams all the time, you know, for a very long time. Teams like the NFL's Cleveland Browns, for example, were caught in, like, this losing, like, mindset or losing it was just like part of the culture you know and and that can happen too where 
again, I don't know the research is clear here, but I can imagine that it's something along the lines of, well, if I keep getting beat down, keep losing, instead of this nice testosterone bump, I'm going to get this nice or not so nice cortisol bump after stuff, you know? And then it's like stress, cortisol, stress, negativity. And then you tie like, because you're getting this stress hormone response, you you tie, you know, doing that activity to something that is, you know, not very pleasant and it can spiral down. So seeing this as like this momentum that we're either building positively or that is treating us towards something or turning us towards something that is defensive that is protective, that we don't want to experience again, like seeing the world through that lens can sometimes help with like this building confidence and belief. And that's important to call out, Steve, is like, all right, momentum works both ways. And it also, again, belief is critical here because we like the idea, we like the belief that we have some sort of control in life, right? In a very chaotic unpredictable, uncertain, um, foreign, threatening, ever-changing environment that is life. We love routine because it gives us a sense of control. We love predictability because it gives us a sense of control, right? But the reality is there is very little that we can control besides our thoughts, you know, and in most cases, what we put into our bodies, whether it's, you know, food or um, what you look at on your black screen device, however many you look at, books, your environment of who you interact with, there's very little that is actually in our control. However, the belief building is identifying what are what are controllables and not controllables, right? And that's why you hear people talk about being process-driven and control the controllables. What happens when people go down the, ne- the negative spiral of momentum is they so- are focused so much on the outcome so much on the result that they believe they should have more efficacy over being able to produce this outcome, but they don't have a clear map, a process on how to do that. Right. And I think that's also really empowering to athletes is giving them a clear process. And so maybe if on race day or game day, they didn't get the outcome or result they wanted, but you talk about the process, right? All right. How was the first, what was the first mile rhythm like? Were you staying on task and trying to execute, you know, your race um, strategy and race plan, you know, thusly? Did you shift to off task, right? Those things you can actually have a dialogue and then start to improve. And then as they start to get better at executing their race strategy and what their race plan is, um, the more confidence they're going to get in their style of racing. And this is really important, I think, to call out is a lot of people anchor their race plan in splits. Run this time. It it's a it really is a fool's errand because you don't have as much control over the split as you think, and you're on such a razor's edge. Like if you do run the split, great, it gives people a sense of control and confidence. But nine times out of ten, you might be ten seconds off, five seconds off a mile for a variety of reasons, and then the alarm bells go off. Rather than, say, run this split, which, again, you're taking people out of a flow state because they have to check in with an external measure constantly to see if they're you know, on track or off track. Talk more about a process. Find a rhythm. Focus on this mechanical cue that you're working on. 
be competitive with this pack. One thing I like to like, you know, tell athletes, you know, in a half marathon or marathon is, hey, for the first quarter of the race, first 10K, 5K, whatever, go and find a good pack that's well within your ability. You know, a pack that like you can have fun with, a pack that you can say, yeah, this is cool. I'm getting excitement. Like I'm feeling really good here. We're only a quarter of the, the way through. And yeah, man, I, I'm not breathing hard, like having a good time. I'm actually encouraging others. What that does is it sends a positive cascade of neurotransmitters into your body as well as everyone else in the pack. And now you're kind of supercharged yourself, right? So then for the middle half of the race, again, whether it's a half or a full marathon, then up the ante and start to run kind of at your um, your threshold that you've been practicing at that rhythm, at that pace that you really want to nail. And you're going to nail it because you started off a little easier, conserve glycogen, but plus you also got positive hormone release. And then it's going to give you more kind of um, attachment and um, uh, excitement to kind of grind out that last quarter of the race when your fueling stores are getting... Uh, a little bit depleted, when it's starting to get a little difficult, you're getting a little dehydrated, but you're going to have all this momentum behind you because you manufactured it in the last quarter of the race. So you'll be able to quote unquote, gut it out or stick it out versus the inverse, right? Where the person's like, I got to go out right at pace from the beginning or else. And then it's like this total threat environment and am I on pace? Am I on pace? Am I on pace? And then boom, it looks like a bomb dropped off the last quarter of the, the race. They hit the wall like, and they're running backwards, right? Oh, oh, distress, stress, stress, cortisol. Oh. You know, again, like factor that stuff into your race plan as a coach and an athlete because the concept of running a marathon or a half marathon kind of at that monotone race or monotone pace, while it's nice, I don't think it's that applicable to actually how humans in general, respond to uh, external and internal uh, environmental cues in a distressful situation. Yeah, you know, I, I love that example because I think it, <laughs> it it builds or brings into racing this idea of building the momentum or spiraling <laughs> out of control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know? yeah. And, and it really is about how do you get through a race without like having this big threat state you know overcoming you and all of the here's how i like to look at it going into race we have almost like a map right of our expectations of how we what we think how we think we'll feel maybe even what we think we'll run our pace like all this stuff and then during a race we're bombarded by internal and external cues right which then get compared against that map. And the brilliant thing is, like, as coaches or athletes, like, we're in charge of creating that map and those expectations. But during the race, like, the cues, like, come in, and, like, it's almost, like, habitual. Like, they get, they get compared against, you know, that map, regardless of what we're doing. So if we start running along, as you said, and all of a sudden we're off pace, what do you think happens? It's like, oh gosh, we're off pace. I'm now fragile, right? Because I'm in a threat state, as you eloquently outlined. So what does that tell me? 
that tells me that as a coach and as an athlete, setting up the framework, setting up the map so that you're giving them the right, you know, whether, whatever you call it, the goals, the expectations, the right focus points on what matters, like that either builds momentum in a positive direction or contributes to being fragile and in a threat state. And I think often what happens is we put so much emphasis on paces that it only goes one of two ways. If we're feeling great and it's a great day and we're exceeding our paces, we can build momentum off of that. But if we're not, or it becomes this thing that we have to hit, then all it does is become pushes us towards a threat because we, we get concerned, worried, agitated, freaked out if our splits aren't where they need to be. And I think that's where, again, we can, we can shift that and give different focal points so that, you know, someone can handle if their pace is too fast or too slow or all over the place or whatever they think, because like that is not, that is not what, you know, they've decided their brain knows is important at that point. And that's, I think, the key thing about racing is you have to take advantage of the opportunity of being around and competing against other people, right? You can't always just anchor it in that uh, introverted pace uh, silo focus. Use the um, anchor of other people to help create that momentum and that belief and that excitement, you know, and the kind of strategy I gave is exactly what, you know, I told Tara Wong to do in 2016 at the USA half marathon championships. I said, Hey, just go out with the pack for three miles, you know, the biggest pack, like, and just see how that feels. If you, if it's a battle, then just continue to compete in that pack. If it feels easy, take off, you know, but that was it. It was like, that was the extent of the race plan. Figure out, see what it's like for after three miles and then make decisions based on your strengths and how you're feeling to then execute thusly. And then boom, you know, it was easy. She took off. She won. It was great. So you also have to empower the athlete with a little bit of, it's like we have to orient their direction and not give them a script that they have to follow mile by mile or else, like with this kind of the, the split script, as I call it. But more of a, hey, trust your strengths, run to your strengths. And this is something that, you know, again, you need to start doing weeks or months in advance is ask the athlete, what are you strongest at? Where, where, what are your strengths, your self-identified strengths as a competitor, right? Not, don't give me a physical quality. I have fat, I'm speedy, I'm tough, whatever. As a competitor in the competitive environment, what are your strengths? And then you ask the question, what do you want to get stronger at? And they might want to double down on their strength. That's fine. They might identify a gap or a weakness, as some people call it, and then say, I want to elevate that. But at the end of the day, right, you always compete using your strongest abilities, whatever those may be. And you always then have as your um, kind of Achilles heel, if we'll, we'll call it that, your most magnified weakness that you know, you didn't address or didn't get stronger. And so you want to 
elevate everything at the, concurrently as, as best as able, but reminding constantly the athlete through the training process, through the practicing process, through the um, preliminary competitive process, run to your strengths, you're strong, you know, and then debriefing afterwards. And the debrief is very simple, right? You know, a lot of times you hear about debriefs and they're really complex. It's just two questions like what's working after the race, even if it's a really bad race, it's like what's working. And then, all right, what's not working and that needs to be addressed? That's it. And the athlete will tell you after the race very clearly, you know, in in that moment, those things. And then you can craft training exercises, mental approaches in um, further practice sessions to then help elevate and address those gaps or reinforce those strengths. And this stuff, again, it needs to be done early and often. It's kind of like flossing. You can't floss eight hours a day or you can't floss for eight hours the day before your dentist appointment and fool your dentist and not having not flossed for the prior year. You got to floss every day. Your dentist will know. (laughs) And that's, that's the key thing here. You can't say, oh, we'll go through it and talk about it the night before. Like, you know, it's the same with a race plan. You can't just talk about as a cross country coach or even a track coach, all right, here's the race plan at the hotel the night before. I'm just going to throw it on you. And it looks great on paper. But if the athlete hasn't constantly been like building a bridge and connecting the dots and pieces of that race plan, you throw it on them the night before the race and you say, all right, at 600 meters, you're going to run, you know, this split and then you're going to make this move and then you're going to do this. And then at, you know, a thousand and four hundred meters, you're going to do this. If there's no context to it, no rehearsal, no practice, no belief behind it, could be the best race plan in the world. They're not going to run it. They're not going to execute it. You know, I I love that. And as the son of a dentist slash orthodontist, you are correct. Um, (laughs) They know, man. You cannot fool them. Cannot. I tried many times, but anyways, um, you know, you brought up something there that I think is so important, which is the debrief. And yes, it's very simple. I loved your two questions there. I think keeping it as simple as important is great, but I'd like to just pin on that importance because we've talked a lot about like this cortisol, this stress, negative, negative spiral or this positive spiral. Well, when you're going through a bad race or you just finished a bad race or bad competition or what have you, it's easy to negative spiral off of that. But what prevents that is the debrief, right? Because what that does is it allows you to integrate like what you just experienced into the greater story. John, you gave some examples of how to do that, like what went you know, what went right? Like, what are we going to do about this? Like it gives, it shifts the mindset of like, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. I'm out of it. Like I can't control. I have no control over this. I just suck at running, blah, blah, blah. I'm not any good anymore. And it reframes it and allows you to integrate it into your story so that you have a place to go and you have something to take away from it, right? It makes sense. What often we do instead of integrating is avoid right? We just avoid it. We just say, ah, you know, tough luck, like better next, better luck next time. Maybe this will, maybe this will help, you know, maybe it'll just turn around. And I get it. Like I've done that before. It's, it's tempting to do that, but it also doesn't give you 
any satisfying like conclusion or path forward. It just tells you to avoid it, right? And what happens when we avoid things? Like this is like psychology one on one. If we just push things away, push things away, man, that thing just gets like more powerful, more in control, more of like, oh, you're gonna push me away, I'm gonna come roaring back for more, right? So we spiral negatively. So that debrief, well, simple is is very important because it creates that reflective piece to make sure that you don't get that compounding like negative cortisol buildup, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it gives you the opportunity to like get back on the right path without spiraling out of control. And, you know, shout out again to, you know, Mike Smith at Flagstaff, one of the key things he does and that I really esteem for the collegiate or scholastic athlete is the daily debrief through just a simple online, you know, journal Excel sheet that he then reads every night to kind of keep a pulse on where they're at and where their mindset's at about what happened that day. And that's the key. Write it down. Talk about it. Yes. Write it down. Double yes. And, you know, whether it's in a journal or a shared document of sorts, but keeping that written record, right? Um, when you write it, it becomes real. And then you can look back and see what your progression was. You may have started off the season with a lot of self-limiting beliefs or stories that just were negative and telling you, you can't, can't do this. And if you just, like Steve said, if you don't address it, they fester and they become, they come in these growths, so to speak, that hold you back even more. But if you do the hard work and the labor of, of, you know, calling them out, talking about them openly with, um, you know, those who are entrusted uh, counsel to you and step by step, do the messy work, which is again, not a linear progression, not nice and neat. You know, it's a a zigzag, but working on uh, graduating out of that self-limiting belief or mindset then you're going to start to see little wins here and there in practice and maybe little wins on race day. And then hopefully when you get to the the big race, the target race, you're going to have so much of those little wins behind you, creates that momentum and don't take the little wins for granted. You know, they're, they're really critical to that belief building and the momentum building, and they should be esteemed as well and called out um, also. So keep that stuff in mind because if you're not, doing that now, or you've haphazardly done that, that's the key, right? That's where really the better competitors, I think, thrive. It's not the training plan, the secret, you know, workouts, those don't exist. You know, Steve and I share endlessly, and we've looked endlessly throughout, um, you know, uh, history of workouts. Like, there's more optimal training plans, but all training works. All training brings about an effects and gets someone fitter. There's ones that are a little bit less optimal for different reasons, but it all works. The big distinguishing factor is the mindset of the person who is competing. Yes. You know, I think that's a, a great summary of this. I think, you know, you're, you're right. I mean, you look out throughout history, all sorts of different stuff works. Sure, there's some that is a little more optimal, and we try and break that apart. But, you know, in one of Percy Sarity's books, like he goes over the mindset of a competitor incredibly well. And you read that book, and you're just like, okay, 
like this is what it takes this is what it's about and if you have if you've looked at again any good high school coach any good college i don't care what level coach you're you're talking about is they really get that buy-in and belief and they don't just do it in one way it's not just like rah 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 you know some are quiet and get it done um some are scientists and get it done some are you know football coach style and get it done but it's like using what you have your own abilities your own proclivities your own strengths as john talked about a lot to like get that true genuine belief is is key like that's that's the secret sauce right there yeah i mean so the we had a whole podcast on this book you know yes. Saturday's athletics how to become a champion and i'll just read you like chapter five like the starting two paragraphs um, from it an appreciation in the power rests within us and great performances in life are produced outside the realm of the fortuitous and the adventurous great performance is the result of the intrinsic worth as found and developed in the individual great athletes rise and create their own destiny Always, always the great athlete creates the schedule. Never does the schedule create the great athlete. You know, and that there it is. <laughs> and this is like again the difficulty we have sometimes that we think the schedule is the thing that creates the Herb Elliott, the Peter Snell, the Sebco, the Hisham El Garouge, the Alan Webb, right? The um uh you know uh the Babas of the world, like not necessarily it's how they think in their interaction with the schedule that elevates it. And, you know, if I could go back to my younger self, my younger coaching self and say, look, one of the key things is the enthusiasm you bring to the athletes improvement and practice and development, but not just the blind and banal enthusiasm, the actual concrete belief building, bridge building from point A to point B, where they are now to where they want to be. That in between is super fuzzy, but by giving people concrete things to execute on race day and then rehearsing them time and time again, that's how you fundamentally most concretely build the belief. I'll give another example from um, when I was a high school coach. Um, when I start off my coaching career and even this last season when I coached high school uh, this spring again. So both times resulted in a middle distance state champion. So the first one, the young lady was a senior. She was a sprinter that I, you know, I, I converted and built up towards a 1500 meter runner, you know, and she had been a good 800 meter runner, really athletic kid, but moving up to the 15 was tough. She was actually having to uh, dethrone the two time defending state champion. They're both seniors. And I said, look, the only way to do this is use your speed, but you have to use your speed from further out. So the goal, she was used to the very classic high school kick at 200 race plan, right? And it worked well. She won a lot of races and was very competitive in a lot of races, kick at 200 as an inner mirror. It wasn't going to work against this um, state defending state champion. So the goal was to go 300 out. And there was a lot of reticence in the beginning. 
you know, like we tried in a couple like preparatory races or smaller invites or dual meets. She didn't do it. She waited till 200. She waited till 200. Finally, I said, look, you're going to go, you're going to do this in this race. Otherwise, you know, and I gave her some kind of like, otherwise you're just going to run three Ks for the rest of the season. <laughs> like it was an ultimatum. It was like something she did not want to do. She did not want to do the three Ks. So I go, either you do this in this race or it's three Ks the rest of the year. don't care. <laughs> and, you know, she did it and it worked. And from 300 meters out and she blew away the field and gave her confidence. And then going into the state final, she was like, she had this confidence about her and she started just kicking from 425 meters out. And I was like, why did you do that? Well, I just felt really good. I said, great. You know, and she won. That was awesome. Same situation here, you know, almost two decades later, working with this young man, an 800 meter runner, started off the season with a 210 PR, you know, but he's talented, could tell he wanted it. He was engaged and excited. And I was like, all right, here's what we're going to do. The way to win the 800 is you have to go out hard and hang on. And so every you know, workout practice was essentially rehearsing that every race was essentially rehearsing that he was a really good four by 400 runner. And I said, look, we got, there's no kicking going on. Like, just think of this as a double the distance four by four, right? You know, you're going to go hard and then you're going to hang on. And, you know, we built that bridge. We rehearsed it. Sometimes, you know, it didn't work out. He decelerated too much acidosis in his legs, like, cause he went out too hard too soon in the 800. Like there are growing pains for sure in the beginning of the year, but it was culminated in, he did exactly his race plan because his racing style was rehearsed and practiced over and over and over again. And he had no qualms about blasting a 58 first quarter gapping the field, you know, at the state final by like some obscene margin. And then, yeah, hanging on with a 63 last quarter to run 201 and win the state title in a fancy new PR for the kid. And it was phenomenal, right? And he said, you know, I talked to him afterwards. He goes, coach, you know, I just, I just do what we practiced all year. I go, yes, you did. Really, I'm really happy for you. I really enjoyed watching how you competed. It just, man, soak it up. You deserve this. That's awesome. I love it. I mean, it's, it's, that's what it's all about, regardless of the level. It's like, again, you know, given getting that belief by doing the work and, you know, I couldn't sum it up any better with that story. And then the Percy Sarity, you know, if you have, I'm just going to give a plug. If you haven't read that book, if you haven't listened to the podcast on that, you need to go do so because it is cool. (laughs) it's a book i reread every year it's so good it's gold so give that a listen thanks everybody for uh for giving a listen if you haven't check out uh john's new venture which is at where again john where can they find tired is the enemy.com me and tony holler bringing the truth about overtraining to the people All right. Check that out. And until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of our club. And if you want, join the Scholar Clubhouse. Be in the club. Check out the Scholar Running Program. We've got all sorts of goodies. You know what it is. Sign up. Get on board.